Uh, before we start the show, I just wanted to make an announcement. Um, and I know I sound like I'm in some sort of digital wormhole. Trust me, the whole episode doesn't sound like this. I just wanted to add this real quick at the top. Uh, today's guest is Kevin Allison of Risk, and the theme is Digging in the Dark. Uh, we really dig into what it means to get on stage and tell stories that are a little personal, a little traumatic, a little difficult to share. Um, it is an episode that feels way more pertinent uh, in today's culture than it did two-something years ago when we recorded it. Um, as gloomy as that might sound, there's a really positive thing that has changed in the last two years, and it's very recent, and that is that Risk has just released a collection of stories. It's called Risk, True Stories People Never Thought They Dare to Share, and it features some amazing uh, stories uh, told on the Risk stage on the page. Stories by Michaeline Black, uh, Mark Marin, uh, Lily Taylor's in there, Dan Savage, Aisha Tyler, uh, a story from Kevin, and a story from me uh, that I've actually uh, shared on this show, Stories in Session, about the uh, Halloween in middle school that I went to a party as a drag version of my favorite horror movie villain, Frederica Krueger. Um, the book is so great. It, it is sad. It is uh, hilarious. It is gross. It is poignant. Um, if you have the book already, thank you so much for supporting it. Uh, and maybe you can go to Amazon and leave a review. I know that Kevin Allison would really appreciate it. And I would too. All right. On with the show. Hi, I'm David Crabb, and welcome to Stories in Session, a show devoted to the art and craft of contemporary storytelling. What we're going to do here is explore storytelling from all angles, topics, and genres. We're going to hear some of the best stories from live shows across the nation, and we're going to sit down and talk with the experts and amateurs who told them. I'm David Crabb, and stories are now in session. Hey, thanks for joining us for Stories in Session. Before we start, I just want to tell you that today's episode is called Digging in the Dark, and it does address some heavier issues. So consider this your trigger warning, and I understand if you have to leave, but I hope you stay with us. A few episodes ago, we talked to Kevin Allison about Risk, the podcast and storytelling show that he hosts and co-produces with Michelle Walson. The slogan of Risk is where people share stories they never thought they'd dare to share. And it's true, the stories that people tell often dig into uh, very personal experiences. Experiences that you have the feeling might not ever have been discussed elsewhere, except maybe with a therapist, and even then, maybe only a very open-minded therapist. Sharing all these deeply personal things ended up being a big thing that Kevin and I talked about in our interview. So much so that we decided it was worth making it into its own episode. So today on Stories in Session, Digging in the Dark, we're gonna talk about the intersection between stories and therapy. Later, we're gonna be hearing a story from Kevin, and it's about a time when he needed to pay his rent so badly, he considered doing something that's pretty extreme. Hadn't Kerouac and all those guys done it? I couldn't really remember, but I decided they had. We're also gonna talk about what happens when Kevin tells a story instead of going to a therapist. Stories about times when telling secrets to a group of people might even be better than therapy. And yes, the shocking reason why telling your story on stage instead of going to therapy could maybe just be a bad idea. I'm David Crabb, and this is Stories in Session. 
You may or may not know that I grew up as a goth kid in Texas in the 90s. Uh, that was as much fun as it sounds like it was. Uh, I've been telling stories about the years that I was closeted during that period for a long time. Uh, I was totally in the closet from everyone until I was about 16. Part of my job as a comedian and host is making a lot of that stuff funny. Uh, it's making the audience feel safe, like it's okay to listen to or maybe even laugh at someone else's hardships or problems. But when I was writing the memoir, Bad Kid, about that time, I started remembering how painful a lot of that actually was. And it made me think a lot about how interesting it is to tell stories, especially stories that are funny, but that are really about heavy things like emotional pain and trauma. Kevin and I really intersect here as storytellers. Kevin knew he was gay at a very young age, and he went so far as to say that this early realization about his sexuality is probably one of the reasons he became a comedian and storyteller in the first place. I grew up so hyper aware as a little kid that I was gay. Like some of the very first conscious thoughts that I had was that I was physically attracted to boys. I knew it when I was very tiny. Uh, so, and I was very aware of what the words gay and fag meant. By the time I was five, I was really worried about that next year I'd have to go to kindergarten and what if everyone found out I'm a gay fag, oh, right? That early. Yeah. So to grow up with that amount of awareness of this thing inside you, I realized when I was creating Risk that, that it was about these childhood issues, these ideas that I lived with all throughout my childhood of, there's a part of me that's fucked up and weird and freakish. Mm -hmm. And I have to learn how to be charming in the real world, which was why I became a comedian, I think, really. Yeah. Uh, that in classes, I was the class clown because I was essentially saying to everyone, it's weird and kooky how I just made this joke, but wasn't it fun and everyone enjoyed it? Well, there's also a weird thing going on inside of me. So Kevin actually became a comedian as his way to deal with things that he felt uh, afraid of or shame about. And I think a lot of comedians uh, do that. Now, if you do a sketch and it's weird or off kilter or screwed up, you hope people like it. But if they're critical of it, it's just fiction, right? You made up something and wrote it. You're playing a character. But with storytelling, it's a bit different. There's not so much metaphor. You know, you're standing up in front of people telling personal stories and you have to find interesting ways to make the truth of yourself likable, even when you're sharing something about yourself that might be a little unlikable, a little gritty, maybe something that's not exactly PC. Here's a story that Kevin told, and in the story he's doing that, he's sharing something about himself that is indeed wildly taboo. And he's told the story before, and he has an expectation of how the audience is going to respond. But there's this moment when the audience responded in a bigger, slightly different way than he was used to. And it had a surprising, almost therapeutic effect on Kevin. I think you'll know the moment when you hear it. Here's Kevin Allison with The Hustler from Risk in Chicago. After the state, my sketch comedy group had created our pilot for MTV. I went through a period where my fingernails were bit so low that they were bleeding. And it was because even though we had just shot a pilot for MTV, I was afraid I was about to be homeless. You see, 
the network had not let us know whether or not they were going to really pick us up for series for months and months and months. And now the rent was due and I had nothing. The thing was, I was about 22, I was right out of college, and I just didn't feel like I was competent at anything. <laughs> Except for sketch comedy. I mean, I was your man. If you needed a guy to pretend like he had just pooped his pants <laughs> and slipped on a pile of fish. But otherwise, I felt like the only thing I was really good at was scanning the sidewalk for nickels. Now, I had a roommate then, and his name was Ray, and he had kind of an influence on me. We were two gay guys in our 20s who were very happy just seeking sex left and right. And the difference between us, though, was that Ray was super confident, right? He was kind of the wheeler-dealer type. He looked like a Cub Scout in a Disney movie from the 50s, but he always had something up his sleeve. Well now, when I was, had no money for the rent this particular month, he was getting nervous, so he sat me down. It was Friday, the rent was due on Monday, and he said to me, Kev, I'll tell you something, a lot of people don't realize this, but prostitution can be fun. <laughs> I said, uh-huh. <laughs> to tell you the truth, the whole time I'd been living with him, I wasn't sure where he was getting the rent. <laughs> well, any other roommate might have suggested to you, hey, Kev, you might ask your parents for a loan. But he already knew that my parents had already said to me, Kevin, we can't possibly give you yet another month's rent. So, he's laying down for me with all this excitement in his voice, this whole idea of prostitution. It was funny, there was a real twinkle in his eye. And I realized, wait a minute, it kind of helps that Ray loves to sleep with older men, right? And I really didn't. But then he laid it on me. He said, you know, here's what I find is helpful. I like to follow what I call the seven laws of successful whoring. <laughs> and I thought, holy shit. He does this so regularly. <laughs> He's got a system. I felt like I was getting life coaching for the downwardly mobile. <laughs> but I have to say that Ray's laws sounded adorable. The first one I remember was Sweetie Phone Home, which is so cute because it's a reference to the movie E.T. But it's also a warning about how you might avoid getting raped. It's the whole idea that, hey, Kev, if you're gonna hook up with a John, you should call me, your roommate, first to let me know the address you're going to. Great, that was great advice. The next one was money before honey. So that's like, you know, transactional advice. Um, it's probably also the name of a long lost Donna Summer song. <laughs> and then the last one that I can remember was 
hard to get's an easy bet. And that one sounds almost classy, you know? In fact, I think that's pretty much the controlling idea of everything Jane Austen wrote. <laughs> but Ray also said, Kev, listen, if it's safe sex, it might even end up being hot, like in Pretty Woman. <laughs> And there was yet another thing. I was so tired from my NYU days of this reputation that I had for being the ultra-polite, ultra-Roman Catholic boy from Ohio. I wanted to shatter that once and for all. I was really that kind of, look at me, I'm Sandra D kind of kid, right? <laughs> And I thought, well, hey now, hustling, that's something a wild man would do, right? <laughs> Hadn't Kerouac and all those guys done it? I couldn't really remember, but I decided they had. <laughs> so that night, I find myself on the Upper East Side at this bar that Giuliani, shortly thereafter, got rid of. <laughs> <laughs> called Rounds. It was a hustler bar. And when you walk in, the atmosphere was pure David Lynch, right down to the blue velvet. And I noticed right away, there were two kinds of guys there. There were the guys my age, the guys in their early 20s, who all looked like they had taken the sex o'clock sexy train from sex town. I just immediately felt like, oh shit, I hadn't considered that there might be competition. <laughs> well, everyone else in the bar owned a bank and looked like bison. <laughs> and then the next thing I know, someone grabs my hand and I whirl around and I say to myself, oh my God, it's Rush Limbaugh! <laughs> well, you're not gonna believe it, but it turns out it wasn't. <laughs> it was just another big fat man who happens to own 40% of our economy. <laughs> and he took my hand and he raised it up into the light and he showed it to a friend of his. And he said to his friend, look at that. Hair on the back of his hand. That means there's hair on his ass, too. And he dropped my hand and they walked away. <laughs> Every now and then a memory becomes too hard to... <laughs> I was so hurt. It was... It was like they were comparing cuts of meat at the butcher. I was like, fuck this shit, I am out of here. And I started heading right for the door. But as I'm headed toward the door, then I see there's this kind of tall, dark, and handsome, yuppie-looking guy in a nice suit. You know, he was in his mid-40s, so he was a good deal younger than most of the other Johns there. And... He was staring at me, he wouldn't look away. So I thought, all right, game change again. <laughs> Kevin, just be a smooth operator. <laughs> just then I'm noticing I've dribbled much of my beer down my shirt. 
but he approaches me and he comes up and the first thing he says is, what are you, brand new? Like he was putting me down. And I just got this instant bad vibe from this dude. Here's how I would describe it. Seemed like he was a guy who was trying to be an arrogant prick, but maybe wasn't so good at it yet. <laughs> so he then starts to just kind of talk me up, right? He says, I'll tell you what, I don't have much time here. I'm kind of strapped. I don't want to BS you. My name's Nick. I don't have much of a budget. So let's just go back to my place for a half session for 75. I was like, wait, what? Nowhere in Ray's laws was there any mention of half sessions, right? And $75, in my humble opinion, was not enough money for anything. <laughs> I mean, what was I gonna have to come back to this bar nine times for the rent? <laughs> but before I could protest, he's pushing me out of the bar. And the next thing I know, he's pushing me into a cab. And I'm thinking, whoa, 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 Kevin, what about sweetie phone home? <laughs> I was supposed to call Ray from the payphone in the bar and let him know where I was going, but I didn't even know where I was going. I was like, wait a minute, I'm fucking up all the laws, but it's going too quick. So the next thing I know, I'm just trying to get my seatbelt on, but before I even can, this guy, Nick, is loosening the other belt on my jeans. And I said, whoa, 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 buddy, what about the terms? And he said, terms? And I said, yeah, 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 the terms of the transaction and whatnot. And he said, look, kid, you're supposed to act like you're enjoying this. Now get your cock out. And then he yanks my pants down and I'm dick out in a cab. So much for money before honey, Donna Summer would have been livid. Now the driver of this cab is this like eternally bored looking Indian man who's looking in the back seat. He's like, oh yeah, this again, the de-pantsing thing. <laughs> and Nick is trying to get his mouth down to my crotch, but see, he's stuck in his own seat belt now. And eventually I just yelled at him, not in the car, sir. And he said, not in the car, sir like he's a seven-year-old mocking me. And now we weren't even finishing sentences. We were just like, shut the fuck up, fuck you, I'm not gonna do fuck. It was not like Pretty Woman. <laughs> then the next thing I know, I realized I was home. Waverly Place was passing by on Sixth Avenue. So I said, driver, pull over. And Nick looks at me like, the fuck are you thinking? And I'm like, yeah, where is my sense of decorum? And the next thing I know, my feet are on the pavement and I feel safe again. And all of a sudden I feel powerful, right? Like now I want to embarrass this guy. So I just let it rip. I yell at him. The next time you want to suck my cock, you can pay for it first. And I slam the door. And the car sailed off, 
and I realized I hadn't really embarrassed Nick. <laughs> because he was driving away and about two dozen people on 6th Avenue were staring at me, the polite, ultra-Roman Catholic boy from Ohio who now sounded like a crack hoe. <laughs> well, I told Ray the next morning, I said, look, I don't have the rent. And he said, well, there's a very interesting message on the phone machine. And I listened. The state had been picked up for series on MTV. <laughs> so everything was okay. Thank you. Well, I think it's so great when the audience reminds you that something isn't maybe what you think. I mean, I, I, I've seen people tell stories about like, I mean, have you ever seen anyone tell a story about, well, you know, and, and there's an offhand comment like, well, you know, I mean, you know, my father would hit me like a, a lot of fathers yes. do. And you feel the audience and then you see the storyteller be like, oh, is this not a thing? You know, I mean, it's kind of a strange moment. I've yeah. seen it happen oh, yeah. a few times. Oh. Do you feel like the audience's gas made you, was there a little bit of like, I was trying to be a prostitute? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny, yeah. I was, you know, I, I, their reaction put me much more in really remembering being there. And all of a sudden I got like overwhelmed for my younger self and a little bit teary. Sometimes you've got, you've told a story so many times that uh, you might not be as present, you know, to re-seeing and re-hearing things. That's why I think that it is, even if you've told a story and it has been very successful, I think it can be a really useful exercise to say, all right, I've, I've told that story this way. Let me see if I can walk through those same events, but tell it without using a lot of the same words and try to really re-see a lot of it, you know? Yeah. Almost work it as a meditation. So one product of telling a story is that if you are telling it well and you're really present, then you are effectively reliving that experience. You are going through that maybe painful thing that happened to you all over again, and you're processing those feelings. Pretty early on in Risk, Kevin decided to take this idea of storytelling as therapy to the next level. He decided to actually use a story as a way to deal with something he'd just gone through instead of going to therapy. When I, when I told my first radio-style stories on the show, because on Risk, there's the stories that are told in front of a live audience, and there's the stories that are recorded just like this, and but then with music and sound design added. And the first time I told a radio-style story on the show, I went to, I was asked to do a storytelling show in Provincetown uh, about coming out, gay coming out stories. And that weekend I went, I met a beautiful Vietnamese boy who was 19 years old. And I, I was that. 41 at the time, yeah. And it, it was like a Madam Butterfly thing. Like we had this amazingly <laughs> romantic evening and then the next day he had no time for me and I was absolutely devastated. Um, and I was so hurt, but I came home from that weekend and 
I, I thought to myself, I don't have a therapist. Like I'm really, really reeling from this. And I feel like an idiot for reeling from this because a 41 year old man should know better than to like fall head and head over heels and want to marry someone during a weekend in Provincetown who's <laughs> <laughs> half his age. <laughs> so I was like, there has to be a place I can explore that because I don't have a therapist. So I had a sound booth in my apartment for the, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And I just started talking and built that one, like I just said before, just recording it and then going back and being like, oh, that, that's kind of irrelevant and, you know, building it along the way like that. And when I pressed publish on that particular podcast episode, I was like, oh, terrified. That's that's always a good sign when you've really, really worked on a certain work of art or a essay or whatever. And when you press send, you start to get really worried of, oh, my God, what might happen here? So, yeah, so it was a big leap for me. But the response, all the emails and all the mentions on the website and everything else of, holy cow, you took things to another level. This was so, like, I'm a straight man, but I was crying because I felt that before, dude, you know, that kind of stuff. So after that, I was like, oh, wow, I have really found something here that I can do this instead of therapy, right? Like, use storytelling as therapy. Kevin's story got a lot of positive feedback. Uh, people were writing him, contacting him, sharing their own experiences that were similar. And Kevin says that this happens pretty frequently. Uh, something about the show, about hearing people deal with their issues and their darkness, can be healing for audience members too. And it's a great way for the person that isn't necessarily the storyteller to tell their own stories, to turn on their computer and send Kevin an email. We would get all these emails from people who were like, I was suicidal or... My son was doing heroin, or um, I was I did, didn't think I could ever leave my job. But then I started listening to your podcast, and it gave me new perspectives on how I can look at things and speak and be honest in my life. So people were writing that we had, like, saved their lives. <laughs> and, like, literally, I will wake up some days and think, I didn't do jack shit today. But there was that kid who quit heroin, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you fall back on that as like, no, I've done some stuff this year at least. <laughs> so in case you were feeling really great about your job, um, imagine being Kevin Allison, waking up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and consoling yourself with the fact that you indirectly helped someone you've never met quit being a drug addict. Sometimes stories on risk get really, really extreme. So extreme that even the audience doesn't really think the story should be told. It's happened. But if these stories get told for the right reasons, Kevin says, the telling can actually help these people move on. The first time we ever ran a, a story on the subject of child molestation, a young lady came to me. She was a fan of the show, too. And she was like, I, I would like to work on... This was early on. This was like a year and a half into the podcast existing. The name of the episode is Nancy Sullivan, because um, it's just one story, just her story. Um, but she went into such graphic detail about the molestation itself. <clears throat> and I realized, oh, this is a little bit unique and this is a little bit touchy because 
on the one hand, I totally, I could sense what she was trying to do was to put it right there in your face and like make you be like, now, you know, you're five years old and this is happening in this part of your body is, is really shocking to the listener, but shocking in a way that makes you like super engaged and involved in the truth of what she's saying. And, and she, she, she does a lot of crying in the recording too. The first time we recorded it, I said to her, because I was in tears too after she told me the story. I was like, let's sleep on this. I'm going to send you this recording. Listen to it a couple of times over the weekend. Then let's decide, do we want to do another recording to make sure we've got the whole story? Because it was pretty epic, you know. Um, we ended up doing three sessions. Uh, she kept coming back and being like, no, I really want to do this. And when we published the story, there was, it was the first time we got some bite back from fans as well. People were saying it felt exploitative. It felt like she was being too revealing and that maybe she doesn't understand her situation well enough, especially because she was crying in such a um, guttural way at some points in the story. And uh, there were other people who were like, no, 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 this is incredibly brave and it's super important that we hear all this true emotion. But she herself came back to me about 12 days after we released it and she said, I've been in therapy talking about that for a decade, for 10 years, but I have never felt more like I kind of stood on it and owned it and kind of moved further into a deeper place of being on top of it than after making that story public. She was thrilled. So that was what I felt like I needed to know. You know, of course you also have people who are like, oh, a child molester might listen to that and get off on it. I don't, but I really, you know, I, I don't think you can think from that mentality. I mean, I, I especially because her emotion is so, well, yeah, I mean, of course there are psychopaths out there. But I mean, like, what if we lived, I mean, I, I, I have this very similar response to people I know who won't put children, uh, photos of their children on Facebook or share them in any way yeah. because they feel like, well, there's a pervert out there. Well, there's always a pervert out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we lived our whole lives in fear of the pervert, we, there wouldn't be any movies, there wouldn't be any cooking shows, you know? That's hilarious. In fear of the pervert. <laughs> now that's a really extreme example. Uh, it was right for a particular person at a particular time to share her story in that way, in that context. Um, telling stories, especially about really painful things, doesn't always work out as a tool for self-healing. Otherwise, we storytellers and comedians would be the most evolved, transcendent people on the planet. And if you've recently gone to a comedy open mic and looked around, you know perfectly well that storytellers and comedians are not the most evolved, transcendent people on the planet. I was recently at a mixed stand-up storytelling open mic, and I heard a comic there equate sharing emotions on stage with being horribly weak, or to use his words, a total fucking pussy. I wanted to reach over, pat him on his shoulder, and say, who hurt you? 
And then I sat back and I listened to his five-minute stand-up set in which he complained about women in New York. As much as telling a story can feel therapeutic for the storyteller, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it might feel therapeutic, but it's actually not doing you any good because what you really might need is professional help. Kevin says that's why recently he's decided to go back to therapy. You know, I've heard psychologists say that, that memory does not serve accuracy. Memory serves some sort of narrative, you, you using narrative in psychological ways that you feel are suited, suiting you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're making a certain sense. So that's, I'm, so I am starting therapy again because the year 2014, I didn't write any new stories. Now, it was a, there were a couple of reasons for it. One was we started touring with Risk much more. Like I was going to two different towns per month, mm-hmm. plus the shows in New York and Los Angeles. So a lot of traveling and busyness was going on that I was just getting acclimated to. And when I do come into a new town, I want to start with a story that I know works right. generally, you know, right. and will will make people comfortable. So I just got in the habit of running the classics. But I knew that it was also that in 2014, after I had told all these stories where I'd kind of come out as a kinkster and talked about myself being on some sort of sexual evolutionary discovery journey and kind of created a series of stories that made people feel like, oh, he's going to continue finding the next eureka moment in this series. What really happened in my personal life was kind of sorted instead. You know, my life, uh, there was a lot of not growing. But I think that sometimes you just go through periods of your life where you're like, I might need some distance from this. And that's why I've just started this process of looking for a therapist. I, you know, I've had my first, first session with one. But I've warned him. I've said to him, I am a storyteller. When I, when, I, when I went to marriage counseling with my ex-husband, we decided we were going to divorce. But I said, I really want us to take marriage counseling for the divorce, not with the purpose of getting back together, but seeing a counselor so that we can share stories and have a catharsis and feel like we've emotionally... Uh, reached some sort of conclusion or something. You know what I mean? Like, like done, done a sort of ritual of sharing and emoting with, with each other to be done with it all. Um, he was too uncomfortable with it at one point. I was making the therapist cry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so manipulative. <laughs> I know. He, she looked at him and she was like, aren't you moved by what he just said? And Ariel said, listen... He's a professional storyteller. You have to take that into consideration here. And it's so true. That's what I just said to my new therapist guy. I was like, listen, my job is to manipulate people with narrative. So you're going to have your work cut out for you. Yeah. That's all for our show today. On this episode, you heard The Hustler from the show Risk, where everything is therapeutic until something probably isn't. 
Thanks also to the wonderful ginger-headed Kevin Allison. Stories in Session is produced by me, Morgan Jones, Rachel Hamburg, and Jesse Rogala. Our theme song is by the band Mono Gold. Thank you so much for listening. Hey there, yarn spinners and uh, fat chewers. Made me feel gross. If you want to contribute to the conversation, find us on Twitter at SIS underscore show and on Instagram at Stories in Session. That's at Stories in Session. No gaps, no spaces, no underscores. Are all the letters just smashed together like bad grammar. Stories in Session. Uh, we're on Facebook, too, in the form of a page that is hopefully not a hacking Russian bot. And if you're interested in learning storytelling in person or online with yours truly, go to www.crablab.com. That's with two Bs and two Bs. Crabba, Bye-bye with two Bs.